think you can kill a lot of deals, not not just exit ones, but I think a lot of deals. You know, if the momentum is there, the momentum is there, then you need to take it or leave it, but nothing in between. Take the momentum. Starting a company is easy. Selling your company, that's a different story. In The Big Exit Show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy around selling businesses by speaking to ambitious and successful founders who have been on this roller coaster before. Our hosts, venture capital investor Johan von Mill and business journalist Remy Gieling. So Johan, we're back for another podcast. And I think this is a very interesting one because I didn't know him personally mm-hmm. yet. Um, but he sold a very, very cool company to TeamViewer, a Indeed. big software company from Germany. Yeah. And this gentleman, Hendrik Witt, he's called, mm-hmm. he started an augmented reality startup way back in 2014, 2015. Yeah, with the, when the Google Lens was uh, roughly announced in those years. Yeah. There was a lot of, of course, fuss about uh, and possibilities about uh, using uh, uh, AR for business purposes. And he, he took that opportunity and started together with two other founders, a new company. Yeah, because today, you know, you can't open the newspapers without reading about the metaverse, about Apple building a new augmented reality device. But back in those early days, there, there, there weren't lots of devices, let alone software applications for industrial uses. Yeah, and he started that, uh, uh, and he funded it himself, right? The first phase of the company. Yeah. Together with, uh, of course, his uh, co-founders, he did some strategic consulting also on that end. Yeah, to fund the early days. Yeah, which is, I think, very good to fund uh, uh, a company, especially if you are in a new space, then then a lot of investors are reluctant to invest. And then I think you you should bootstrap it. And he did it very successfully. And then afterwards, he, of course, raised funding. But then with a, with a party, which is, from his end, pretty logical, right? Yeah, he also has some great insights about uh, selling a company and what to do in the process. Yeah. But one thing he also stood out, and you'll hear it later on in the podcast, is that uh, uh, maybe one particular trade show was really the key difference for his company to gain traction because as a one single trade show, he got so many big name clients. Uh, that was really the flywheel to take off the company. Yeah, and what I also found a good insight is that he worked a lot with uh, enterprises and then of course you have to work via the innovation departments and they typically have a testing budget to work with something. But he had a way to convince indeed with the innovation department, also the rest of the organization, and also to get some reference and also some data, what he could use also with other clients. And that's often what I see with founders that they struggle with is first to get these clients on board, but then also getting through that phase of innovation and getting through the business. So he had a very good, I think, way of handling that. Yeah. And lastly, uh, we have a scoop for the listeners. Your colleague Friso has found out. Indeed. It's never, nowhere to be found in no, the no, media. No, no, it's completely hidden. So, but, but then people have to listen to the podcast. Yeah, right? what the value was for this company. Indeed. And it is a lot of money. Pretty significant deal here. Have a great listen to this podcast Enjoy. about the acquisition of UBMX by TeamViewer. So, Hendrik, what's the heroic story behind UBMX? That's, that's always a, an interesting question, I would say. Um, I mean, we started off clearly with the vision in mind, you know, we want to change and revolutionize, you know, uh, the way how people work um, when they are away from the desk. So what we typically say, frontline workers. So, and, and we usually used to say, you know, we want to become the Microsoft Office for the frontline worker. I think that was the overarching theme. So, um, obviously not being literally the same than offices for, for us kind of working in the office, but really, you know, conveying the message that we want to revolutionize, that we want to change something that 
not only is changing short term, but stays there really for long term, and which which will become natural, right? We we cannot, I think, we cannot envision a life, let's say, without Microsoft Office these days. Um, so we're re kind of envisioning, um, you know, that we want to do something similar for frontline workers. Mm, that's indeed a great bold vision. Hey, and what uh, what's the real story behind Ubimax? Well, the real story behind Ubimax is basically, you know, we do. Um, you know, workflow process optimization. Um, and we're taking technology as one component into the equation. And in this case, we were betting on wearable computing technology. So basically computers that you can re- literally wear on body. And then, you know, and then um, augmented reality technology, which is nowadays quite well known, you could say. But for us, starting the company back in 2014, yes, it was known, but for sure not to the extent it is today. So let's go to the beginning. What was the biggest problem you were trying to solve in those early two or three years of the company? Well, the biggest problem probably we were trying to solve, you know, it is obviously always different perspectives, right? One thing's for sure, I mean, we started off with this vision going augmented reality, going smart glasses back the days. And it was a mess. So technology-wise, it was a mess, right? I mean, our software guys, they were sitting there and trying to bring out stable software on these devices. But but the devices were doing all sorts of crazy things. Everything else that was kind of expected from them in terms of the specification uh, that was that was probably the biggest thing to um, to accomplish in the in the very early days, right? Because the beginning was all about you know building the first prototype, building the first thing that we can actually show and give to people, and that would not break immediately. So, and therefore, we had been working day and night, um, lots and lots of headaches, how to get in control of the hardware piece. <clears throat> And how did you, especially those early days, right? Uh, because uh, also as an investor, I know it's hard to fund your company these early days. How did you fund in the early days your company? Um, we actually self-funded everything um, in, in, in the early years. So what we did is, you know, we were three co- co-founders, basically. Mm-hmm. I met my two co-founders when we were still in strategy and management consulting business. Um so, and we basically collected a little bit of money. So we, we didn't spend uh, on our private lives a lot. So mm-hmm. we collected it and therefore then we, we funded it, funded it. Um, and then we were also in the, in the very early days, we were basically running parallel kind of the consulting work stream Indeed, where, yeah. you know, people paid us money for certain consulting services, mm-hmm. which we then kind of poured into the actual product development. So, and that was going parallel for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and therefore we could actually, um, you know, self-fund, um, the business there. How did you find your first customers? Uh, very good question. So, um, we had, we had some relationships. So, um, th- there was research going on in that field. Um, and, um, I, I still have, I'm a lecturer at the university. Mm-hmm. So, and I have strong relationships still to the university angle. And there were some research projects where they were trying similar things that we wanted to build and build a product out of it. So we had a first kind of 
segue into a potential client where we could work with. Um, and that was actually back the days, um, they were still called Daimler. Um, so Mercedes-Benz, the, the, the famous automotives. So that was one of our first kind of customers we could convince um, to pilot and that we could, in addition, convince to get us a quote that they are kind of a believer in this technology, maybe despite the fact that this is not all perfect yet, mm-hmm. but this is part of the future. They believe in that. And with that quote and with some, you know, qualitative data and quantitative data in terms of process improvement, speed, quality, these type of things, um, we kind of created our first brochure, flyer, whatever you're going to call it, um, and then went on a trade show. Went on the trade show um, in the logistics space because we had a use case back then with Daimler in the logistics space, so for order fulfillment in warehouses. Um, and with that kind of reference, if you will, we, we, we kind of rented a small booth and then we were quite early. We were actually unique um, in that whole um, you know, trade show environment there. Uh, well, and then that was quite a success, I would say, because uh, we so many people uh, bumped into our um, booths wanted to see obviously the hardware because it was something that maybe people knew from the news it was around the days where we had google glass devices but it was rather famous because of the glass hole type of story around it Mm -hmm. so what you could also do but we were kind of turning this thing into a productivity improvement tool for enterprises and organization and that that narrative kind of resonated well I would say it was many large organizations and they were, you know, all over it. Well, and from there, I would say the story, you know, everything started, accelerated, was growing and we were kind of overwhelmed by, you know, the the reception, uh, how well that was from the market. Yeah. And I can imagine that, especially having a brand like Daimler and then also some proof and indeed the quote, but also the numbers behind it, that's what you can save and what you can, indeed, what's the actual value of your product really amplifies the growth of your business, right? What were those years, especially after getting Daimler in and going to these events and talking to other clients, what was the most important challenge of you and the rest of the founding team in those years? Um, Back back the days, obviously a lot was with, you know, innovation centers, so which are now quite common in large organizations. I still remember, you know, DHL still being a client, but certainly being one of our first clients as well. We came in through the innovation centers. They also met us um, at that trade show. Um, and then one of the biggest hurdles there is obviously, you know, despite having a small proof of concept or even a productive pilot being rolled out in one of the sites of a global player like DHL, for example, mm-hmm. the question is, you know, how do you get to scale, right? And then, and then what sometimes happens, so the, the innovation department is great to start and can even be an evangelist inside these large organizations. But then there comes a point in time kind of when they run out of budget mm-hmm. and when they say, you know, we have now incubated the thing, but now you need to test further. And actually you also need to pay for that. So that took a long term time. And, and DHL was one of the examples. Uh, we had multiple of these. So from, from the initial pilot phase to truly going into production, um, certainly you have to convince a lot of people but also, frankly, we had to work on quite a number of, of you know, 
big challenges, uh, including obviously change management, right? You have mm -hmm. your frontline workers. They're not used to use these type of super fancy gear, I would say, right? Um, so lots and lots of things there. So really, um, I think in a nutshell, it's, it's really from pilot to production and then scale. That was uh, the key thing. And one last question on this one, because I see that a lot with young companies, right? Working, wanted to work for big companies and then entering via the innovation department because there's always budget there to test out things. But how right. do you indeed involve the business, right? And how do you change from a pilot project to a recurring project? What's the biggest advice, Hendrik, what you can give to founders listening on that perspective? I, I would say don't play strong the cool technology that you use, really purely focus on the business value. So I, I've seen also a lot of folks out there focusing a lot on, you know, fancy augmented reality and everything and wearable computing. I mean, this gets you into the door. But, you know, going through it, it's all about, like you said, the business value, the return on invest, the hard facts kind of um, And, and that was also, um, I guess, the key for us being successful because we always had customer in mind. What is the value that we bring to the table despite mm -hmm. the way how we do it, right? Because that can also sometimes become a challenge. And certainly it was also for us because we came in with a brand new even computing paradigm people are not used to. So how do you create trust? Mm -hmm. uh, we found it focusing on business value and also... Speaking the language of the business, I think, is important, right? Mm. So that they really accept you, um, that you know the industry instead of you, quote unquote, only know the tech mm -hmm. and you're kind of a geek. Uh, but they want to talk business and they need somebody you can they can rely on for mission critical processes. And that obviously is even harder if you are a small startup, right? Yeah. Then you need to do much better than, you know, the big guys. The growth phase. When did you notice in the company you were really starting to make traction with your products you were developing? Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, it all started literally with this very first trade show. And then it was a snowball kind of rolling because we had more. So then we acquired DHL, like I said. We were always playing strong the reference stories, right? We, we wanted to let customers say something about our products and solutions instead of us saying something. Because when we say it as marketing, when, when they say something, and in particular those big ones, that gets you credibility, right? And then it starts from there. That was the big thing. So, And I think that was the key for us, really this reference story element to our strategy. Because then obviously when DHL came out, a lot of their competitors called in, right? And said, oh, did we miss something? Almost like this, right? Um, and that we did in, in, in multiple different industries. So we could see it really in a lot of industries because obviously you sometimes never know, right? Which ones will succeed by the end of the day. Um, so, and then constantly it was really accelerating from there. So we're building on top of a success, telling it the world, almost evangelizing and, and giving the confidence to the market. And then we kind of made the market as being the leader in that space. Uh, and then the growth came. 
So, so your growth model was get in one client in a specific space, right? Get him to ask to to give a very positive reference on you, build a use case, and build some proof on that, and then expand it to to other customers. One thing I've learned is that that especially enterprises are, and perhaps also those days, but these days, pretty reluctant, right, to to help on that because there's no clear incentive for them to to share this knowledge and to make their competitors wiser than they should, because otherwise also their competition will also use this. Yeah. How did you deal with that those days? Um, that one uh, maybe was a bit special for us. Maybe we were just lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember <laughs> in, the, in the early days, it was like, you know, typically our sponsors inside the organizations were, Baza, let's say, young people, right? Um, eager to do something, play around with technology, and, and they also wanted to make, I would say, a career in these organizations. I think that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, they were in innovation departments or, or similar organizations. So, and, and we were eventually lucky that they felt by, you know, taking early on kind of the risk on going with those type of technologies, but not just going with the technology, but on the other hand side, also giving the tangible business benefits back to their business, mm-hmm. they could actually go and say, Look, because because I have been, you know, looking into this new thing here, I was able to give you some tangible business benefits on how we can improve. And, and obviously that resonates quite well with larger organizations, right? If they are finally, quote unquote, finally people that take something, that take in technology and do something good for the business. Um, so that was a good thing. And then obviously you could really stand out with augmented reality, smart glasses. That was kind of new right back in the days. Um, so How did you fund the growth phase? Did you raise money or uh, did you fund it uh, uh, with the clients? No, like, like I said, through the early stages, um, we've been self-funded. But then obviously there came the point where we kind of were thinking about, you know, global expansion, international stuff, we had to onboard a lot more people in a fairly short amount of time. And that obviously then and self-funding becomes challenging. Um, and then we decided, okay, um, maybe it's good to raise a Series A type of a thing. Um, and um, how was that? I mean, we obviously, uh, you know, prepared what you always do, you know, a small pitch deck around the various different things. We were sending it out to a couple of VCs out there. And then there was some interest. Um, and we also got, I, I frequently got kind of quite some inbound interest because obviously VCs constantly scanning the market for something new, something where customers are behind. And I would say also from a VC angle, you know, it creates quite some confidence if you are able to bring some big names behind your products and your organization. So that also, frankly, created quite some inbound um, from VCs and people interested in, in kind of investing. Well, and then we, we were going through the process and, and, and we ended up um, with a fund called Atlantic Bridge, which is an Ireland-based fund. So it's, it's European guys. Uh, it was important for us that we pick a VC that understands kind of also, frankly, the German GmbH uh, uh, model, mm-hmm. uh, which is different to in US, but like the name implies, Atlantic Bridge was literally or is about you know expansion of European companies into 
uh, the United States. And that was what we uh, wanted to do. And then in addition to, let's say, the great story around that and what they can bring to the table despite money, um, I think it is super important that there is a connect um, on the personal level with the people, uh, kind of with the deal team, but also later on with the people that will sit on your board and will give advice and you need to work with them. So, and then, then we found Atlantic Bridge uh, and that was looking backwards, absolutely the best um, decision we could make because it just, was just working great with those guys. Um, they were kind of patient and, and understanding, frankly, also the business. So understanding the augmented reality space because they have been investing in another successful augmented reality player out of Germany, which was back the days Mateo, the company that got acquired by Apple. So they were an investor in Mateo. And when they kind of sold, uh, they were looking for other players in that space. And then um, Ubermax was kind of second. Looking back, uh, as you probably know, as an entrepreneur, right, it's all about learning and it's all about, let's say, adapting to the new reality. If you look back, let's say, that growth phase where you're in with the knowledge that you currently have, right, also being uh, active, of, of course, within TeamViewer and also growing the company since, what would you have done differently? What I would have done differently is I think we should have been a bit more aggressive going into the United States market. Um, we've been starting off and I think that was absolutely the right decision to go kind of with one of our co-founders moving over because I, I was a big believer in you need to have someone of your co-founders that, that knows the company in and out in the strategy and, and you have to trust in that person mm -hmm. and send them out to kind of conquer the market. And we did this, but in the early days, frankly, he was kind of a lonely stranger. He was alone there. Try, I mean, it's a massive market going out there, trying to figure out all the various different things. <clears throat> I think from today's perspective, we could have gone a bit more bold there, hiring a bit faster people, obviously knowing there is a high turnover, but accepting that and also accepting that you have to spend ahead of the curve before you get the return. Mm -hmm. um, I think if we would have done so, we would have probably grown even a bit faster in the in the U.S. market because back the days, obviously, uh, when we when we got acquired, the U.S. was one of our strongest markets. Mm. Yeah, so it was a fairly small team, yeah. but we were heavily relying on European, let's say, central services. Right? Mm. We could have been a bit more bold, more infrastructure. Again. The exit. So what was the first time when you thought it might be time to exit the company? Well, the first time when you, uh, when you think about it is, in our case at least, it was when I got, uh, again, an inbound request from large players out there trying to uh, inquire, let's say, uh, usually you call it a partnership discussion, <laughs> right? So, Strategic um, talks, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Strategic talk, partnership, discussions, maybe good idea to talk, let's chat. Um, so there were multiple um, different of these these uh, inquiries. And, and then I still remember in the early days, it was just, oh, okay, yeah, but no, too early, we were in, successful, all this stuff. Why would we, right? We, we sometimes felt, no, it's too early really to do this. There's a lot more we can do. Um, and we never, that's also, uh, I think, well, it's, it's the truth for us. We never ran into the situation of being close to a red zone 
in terms of run rate or everything. So we managed finance quite well um, so that we were never and never felt kind of pressure. Oh, now it's becoming difficult eventually if something is not, if we're not winning those deals or whatsoever. So we were there in a quite luxury position, I would say. Well, and then, and then at some point, obviously, if larger organizations then continue to be interested, then you talk. And sometimes you go on site, you have discussions, you move that process fairly far, but then you realize, yeah, but that's maybe not where I feel good about it. Like also on the personal level, eventually, if you can't envision yourself being in that company, for example, mm -hmm. then uh, we, we kind of dropped some um, in, in the days, in particular, when we still felt, hmm, no, it's not really the right timing. And what did change? When when did uh, that timing and that right time uh, came apparent to you? Yeah, so um, we had, I remember, we had three organizations where we were fairly far, a lot of them coming, uh, or many of them coming out of the United States, mm -hmm. which is, I think, almost natural, I would say, for the, for the technology and software business we were in. So, um, and then we went pretty far in that, didn't go through um, because of us, frankly. Then we said, then our VC investors, they were saying, yeah, okay, but what do we do now? Uh, and we said, mm, we probably keep going. And then we're just saying, yeah, okay. Then uh, we were raising kind of a new round. Uh, we're doing a series B type of a round because we said, uh, we know what we want to do. We believe in the execution and in the success and everyone in the board felt the same. So we actually wanted to say, okay, Let's keep it for, let's say, two years, two more years or so, so for the next round. But then, obviously, I remember still, then, then TeamViewer approached us uh, right after we closed the round, the Series B. Mm -hmm. And again, we had a great conversation. This time, I mean, ultimately, that went better. Mm -hmm. um, because, frankly, in particular, I would say because of the, the personal relationship and the way everyone was feeling about kind of such a partnership and frankly also because of the vision and the picture they painted or let's say we jointly painted together right it, it was from i would say from day one onwards it was a joint dialogue on what we could literally do better together right how can we grow the business better because certainly you run into some limitations as a startup right if you really want to scale and we were about to scale very big in some of the accounts, but then certain elements uh, hit you from procurement, be it the size or the global, the true global footprint, these type of things. And then back to today's team, you had uh, quite a good mix, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, and then we went down that road. How did you know what a reasonable valuation was for the company and who did the first offer? Well, the, the reasonable value, obviously, that, that's probably one of the toughest questions in the whole business. What is a reasonable valuation? I mean, certainly we were quite, I would say, informed what is the valuation in our space. Our VC obviously had also quite some transparency in the AR market, um, not only because of the, the successful transaction they did in that space, but obviously also left and right. So we have good networks in that space. So, um, and, and then usually 
you know, when you're on a recurring business, it's it's typically a multiple on your ARR. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I would say there's ballpark numbers in the various different scenarios and stages of your company um, with customers and, 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 and everything. And then, well, and then we ca- came to, to evaluation. And um, obviously, in the beginning, you always have different opinions on, mm-hmm. on valuation. I think that's natural. Uh, if you don't, then yours is too low. So yeah, we did it like this. I mean, it, it was an exercise as in terms of a multiplier on top, you know, uh, uh, on the ARR. Yeah, and and normally because of course as a VC, right, we we enter a lot of these uh, trajectories, and and what we always aim for is have let's say multiple offers on the table on the same moment so that you compare and can negotiate. But in your case, if I understand you correctly, you had three buyers, and then you dropped out, and then team viewer came, so you had one option on the table. Did you in the process somehow also? try to get in other plays again, or were there also, let's say, other players informed so that you could benchmark or see what other options were there on the mm-hmm. table? I mean, like I said, I mean, we had some some other options uh, or offers on the table from, from the others, let's say, mm-hmm. that were before, obviously timing-wise also before, um, earlier. No, but it was really like, um, no, we were not. Uh, I was, to be honest, I was not a big believer in, in a competitive scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were just, were playing it very open and honest and transparent. We were saying, look, we have no pressure. Mm-hmm. We have no pressure. Yeah. We have just, you just raised the funding, right? so, yeah. we're funded for the next three years. There is a plan. We have commitments from customers. We have everything that we need. We have a great team on the ground so we can easily, I wouldn't say survive, but you could also say survive the next kind of three years without any issue. Right, uh, and it was more a discussion on on the vision, on the potential we could jointly have together. So, it, not not the question whether you know I can buy someone cheap because uh, that company sits in the corner somewhere. Um, it was more like, yeah, okay, maybe it makes sense to really join forces. So, it, yes, it was an acquisition, but I at least always perceived it as there is a good value from both companies that they bring to the table. And the key here was, you know, jointly working on something. And then, frankly, also, I mean, uh, by the end of the day, it was TeamViewer, right? TeamViewer is uh, only few people know it. It's a, it's a German-based company, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, even though it sounds American, it's it's a German-based company. So one of the very few, I would say, large software players with global reach, that was obviously quite fantastic. Also for the team, quite fantastic. So they they did not need to move immediately, let's say, to the st- to the states, for example, which sometimes happens for for larger organizations if they acquire. So it was really the mix, and 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 we had the vision of creating a significant European software player, maybe this, the next kind of after SAP. Yeah. And um, and the management team of TeamViewer, I think, also made it quite clear they wanted to have us on board, yeah. being and playing an active role. Mm. And, and how did you, uh, I learned also as an entrepreneur, but also as an investor, right, that, that especially those those moments when, vision and and the price is being paid not always aligned right and then also the founders and the investor also can have a different view right about the company which which in most times perfectly goes well but also sometimes creates some 
let's say, some friction, right? Because you're not fully aligned. How did you, especially also as a founding team, deal with your investors those days? How did you handle that? Because you probably you were not always aligned fully on what to get out of this deal. No, uh, of course. I mean, uh, like I said, I think it's always the open discussion. We had a very trustworthy relationship. We're openly discussing, obviously, the, the, the ballpark numbers of what uh, is every investor expecting, what were we expecting, and then we, uh, I think we as a team came to a very good conclusion. Like I said, uh, I think uh, those are probably the best investors we could have in our business because we had an open exchange on the various different things. We were uh, not just looking at, at the actual money, but the overall situation. What does that mean for founders? What does that mean for team people? So, mm-hmm. so it was the whole package. And then we basically came to a conclusion and said, okay, if, if we're going to hit something like this, then we then we would continue the discussion. Mm. And, and we somehow got there by the end of the day. Okay, good to hear. You probably discussed the process at the closing with some maybe some close friends or some advisors. What was the best advice you got on managing the exit process? Take the momentum. Use the momentum. I think momentum is key. I think you can kill a lot of deals, not not just exit ones, but I think a lot of deals. I think if if you have two teams that are really on fire, want to make something work, and want to get something done, I think then you then you need to do it. Then you need to just execute it and really also go the extra mile on this. I think uh, I've seen also other startups that kind of uh, missed it on. You know, if the momentum is there, the momentum is there, then you need to take it or leave it, but nothing in between. I think that was the thing. And it was a terrible time, I can tell only. <laughs> it was working day and night. Um, but again, both sides, day and night, right? It was really day and night. We were working this team first, just the founders. Then we had to expand larger group. We had to bring people behind that. Still, obviously, everything super confidential, um, and then, but it was a real team effort. That's the only thing I can say. But the biggest advice is if you sense there's momentum, do it. And, and how do you, because I fully agree with you also in every aspect of running a business, right? Momentum is key. I, I, I've heard a great quote about this. Yeah. Time hurts all deals. Time kills all deals. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> also, yeah. yeah. And, and, but how do you, especially in the process like this, Hendrik, how do you know there's momentum? I think you feel it. I, I, yeah. I think that okay. there, there is no no real indicator I could I could name. I think you have to somehow feel it, and and you know if again I think if both sides if you feel both sides have a timeline mm-hmm. and know eventually time kills it, then then I think it is if, if everyone on both sides is hardworking, if they are, uh, if there is a quick turnover of information or yeah. so you get a call scheduled, even on the C-level, and you don't need to wait another two weeks, then you know there's true interest, and then you know someone is committed to also make it happen, and not just you. Yeah, No, and I, and I fully align with you that it's also in, in other parts of the process, but also it's raising funding, right? If if we, yeah. for example, at Peak receive a pitch deck and we ask a few questions and it takes a few days to respond, then it also says a lot, right, about the match with the company, right? So it's a lot about energy and speed in the process, yeah. Correct. And, and the other way around, you probably would also agree, right? Indeed. If you look at the deck and say, hmm, yeah, maybe, and then I'm going to ping you every day and you're responding, I don't know, yeah. not or yeah. later, then I also know now maybe, okay, nice idea, but probably not the best. 
Yeah, fully agree. Hey, and, and, and about feelings, because that's interesting, right? As entrepreneurs, there's a lot of written about, indeed, let's say, the tactics and the rationale behind it, but also a lot about about feelings. How do you feel? What did you feel and how did you feel as an entrepreneur after the exit, right? When the exit was uh, was realized? Exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Truly exhausted. But also happy, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not because of doing the exit, because of doing the right thing. Really believing in the vision. And it was... A maybe special situation for us. I think we were in a lucky position, or we are in a lucky position right now. We can still shape the future of it, right? We're not kind of out. Mm-hmm. We're explicitly in and part of the journey and being even in the driver's seat for some of the areas. So I think that was what also made us truly feel happy about it, right? Not that we just made it, but uh, that uh, it is really... It is a journey that continues, maybe in a slightly different fashion and setup, mm-hmm. but the journey continues. It's not, you know, the product gets taken off the market, sits there for three years uh, in silent mode, and then there's a big uh, coming out. Was it something new? Uh, no, it was different. It was it was just you know keeping with keep going on with the existing, making it bigger, bigger, faster. These type of things and being part of the journey. How did you celebrate the closing with your with your co-founders, and what did you buy for yourself as a present? So here's the thing: I think the the celebration was remarkable. So what we did is uh, actually our office is next to an event location, so really literally next door. So uh, obviously everything in stealth mode. Um, so we we plan to do the final signature. Artificially, we have invited our entire team to the event location for a business lunch. We we signed the deal. We came with the entire team. The people were sitting there having a breakfast. We were a bit late because it took longer than expected uh, to sign the stuff. And then we kind of went into this, announced that everyone was kind of obviously shocked first, uh, but then also excited about the opportunity once they could digest that. And then we went together already with the C-level, with the entire deal team, really into this party thing. And I think then TeamViewer did something great, which is then we said the next day we're going to fly to the headquarters, which are in the south of Germany. So Max headquarters was in the, in the north of Germany. So we have a bunch of tickets. Whoever wants, feel free to join us. The next morning, the flight leaves kind of. And we were going with a whole crowd, not, well, not the entire, obviously, oh, wow. but a significant crowd, mm-hmm. flying over to Stuttgart, spending the day in the headquarters, also big announcement, team, people, meeting, mingling, all these different things. And then we were flying back in the evening. So that was kind of how we celebrated that. How did we celebrate as founders team? Due to the fact that one of our co-founders was sitting in the States and due to the fact that there was COVID and he couldn't come, Mm -hmm. uh, we did not celebrate. We met last year, uh, New Year's Eve, kind of, uh, around that time frame. So we, uh, we, we rented an apartment and with family, we kind of celebrated that, but much later than the actual exit was. So that, that was it kind of. And, and what did you buy for yourself as a, as a gift? Because we always see also that entrepreneurs buy crazy or cheap or no gifts. But what did you buy for yourself in your case? I, uh, what, I, what I did is uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's truly for myself. I, I, I invested in real estate a little bit. That was something that I did. But other than that, uh, that was it. 
depth evaluation. Then the moment we've all been waiting for. How big was the exit of UBMAX to TeamViewer? The press release of the acquisition happened on the 15th of July 2020. However, the amount of the acquisition was not specified in the press releases anywhere. But since TeamViewer is a public company, the company is required to publish its financials in the annual reports. By digging through the annual report for 2020 of TeamViewer, I found the acquisition details of UBMAX. I therefore have the honor to publicly state the acquisition price of UBMAX for the first time in the media. The total value of UBMAX at the time of the acquisition was around 138 million euros. The annual report states that the acquisition was partially paid for in TeamViewer shares and partially in cash. TeamViewer paid around 86 million euros in cash for about 62% of UBMAX shares. The other 38% of UBMAX was acquired in return for newly issued TeamViewer shares. The value of the TeamViewer stocks that were issued was about 52 million euros. Now, was this a good deal for UBMAX? Well, at the time of the acquisition, the annual revenue of UBMAX was around 9.1 million euros. With an acquisition price of 138 million euros, we can calculate that they were acquired for 15.17 times their annual revenue. If we compare this revenue multiple to the multiple of other SaaS companies within that same time period, we find that this is indeed a high multiple because the other SaaS companies had a revenue multiple of around 11.7. Hendrik, we can conclude that you made a great deal with TeamViewer. Great words from your colleague, Johan. What's your response, Hendrik? Yeah, I think it's about right. Uh, I think, uh, like I mentioned, right, I, I believe it was a great deal due to various reasons. One is the financials, the other is, uh, but similarly important, I would say, you know, the team, the people, everything that we've been able to do for our people, actually. I think that is, for me, super important. People truly matter, and I can only advise everyone, pay attention to whom you hire, right? Don't overspend. Uh, not the most high-paid people are the best ones. And, and uh, so uh, you really need to have committed people. So we do. I mean, you know, there's pros and cons to, to partially share deal, um, like was mentioned in the numbers. You could obviously, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a secret, right? Um, the capital markets these days are rough. Mm-hmm. But all founders and, and all the investors, uh, also from today's perspective, feel happy about the deal and everything. So, um, no, good deal, I would say. Mm, good to hear. Last question from me, Hendrik. What are your personal plans and ambitions for the future? Well, you know, now in my new role at TeamViewer, I'm chief product officer. So taking care of the entire TeamViewer product portfolio. So, um, you know, I'm very ambitious. So want to, you know, also um, make TeamViewer and TeamViewer's products even more successful in the future. Certainly, you know, the, the former Ubermax portfolio, making sure that this grows nicely and becomes a significant and strong pillar of the TeamViewer future. But Similarly, also making sure, let's say, that the heritage of TeamViewer, that the, the software that everyone knows, right, that we also improve there. So that is certainly something for me. And then at some point in the future, obviously, I also want to um, enjoy life a little bit. Not, not short term, I would say. I'm still feeling energized uh, enough uh, so that I can, can do a lot of things. So, But when the time comes where I feel, okay, that is now in good shape and, and I did everything that I could and maybe now somebody else um, should do and continue that work, um, then maybe I do something else. Let's see, maybe again in software, maybe 
in some completely different um, space, um, time will tell, I would say. Yeah. You know where to find us as peak, right? If you start a new SaaS business again. For example, yes. <laughs> uh, for example, then of course, uh, if I do that, then I, I know obviously where to go. Wonderful. Cool. Thank you so much. I thought it was a very insightful Indeed. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank yeah. you so much for your time. And thanks for sharing all the openness yeah. and all the feedback and learnings that you had. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show by Peak. We hope you enjoyed today's program. If so, please subscribe to our show on Spotify or on your podcast platform of choice. If you have feedback, let us know. Send us a message to podcast at peak.capital. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us for the next episode. See you soon.